Today's Dead Idea, this is part three of our series on Moism, an ancient Chinese philosophy that, among other things, believed that aggressive war was absolutely wrong, but that didn't make them pacifists. In fact, they were specialists in war, but specifically in tactics of defense. We're going to focus on that part today, reading from their actual tactical playbook preserved for us in the text of the Moza. That's what we're talking about today on Dead Ideas. Hey, thanks for listening, everybody. The music we just heard was composed by Rachel Westhoff, my lovely wife, who just this morning handed me a boxed lunch, kissed me on the cheek, and said, Have fun defending the castle! (laughs) 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 Actually, as we might see today, women would not necessarily have stayed home when it came to defending the city. Yes. Yeah, so women were not necessarily... uh... They were not necessarily useless, according to the Moists. No, they were very in, involved in, in defensive warfare. Yeah. yeah. So I, are we, are we going to see that today? There will be a little bit of that. Yes. yes. Yeah. Okay. So first of all, not my co-host for the day, but my <laughs> host for the day, Andre Solo. Are you looking for, for Mo warfare? You looking for <laughs> Mo bloodshed? Yeah. You looking for Mo heads rolling? Well, that's what I brought for you guys today. All I need is Mo of those jokes. <laughs> <laughs> the episode today is Andre's baby, and we're focusing in on the military defense tactics. That was pretty much the only thing that made the most like liked in ancient <laughs> ancient warring states, China. Like yeah. lords wanted their tactical defense strategies because they were really good at them. And then the rest of their philosophy, they're generally kind of meh on. <laughs> but <laughs> but you needed them when it came to crunch time. Yes. So that's all I got. Take it away, Andre. All right. So um, I'm going to just dive in with what my understanding was mm-hmm. of ancient Moism for the okay. longest time, sure. which is not 100% accurate. Uh-huh. But what I was originally told uh-huh. was and that... And does this match what we've already talked about, or, or is it going to be... Deviant. It largely matches. Okay. But it might be a bit of an exaggeration. Okay. So what I was originally told was yeah. that Moists were pacifists, that they believed that aggression was always wrong and aggression was always destructive. It's also the dark side it is. <laughs> it's the dark side. <laughs> aggression, exactly. the dark yeah. side it is. <laughs> so they, uh, they, of course, did not feel there was ever an excuse to provoke a war, to go to war, to, uh-huh. uh, to attack someone. But because aggression was seen as destructive, mm-hmm. what was and wasteful and wasteful, what was appropriate was to allow the attacker's own aggression to destroy them. Oh, okay, nice. Now that I have not actually seen in the Moist text, having now read Moism, uh, Mo, the Mozu, but um, that was how it was originally described to me. And well, so, also as mm-hmm. we heard last time, Sun Tzu, who wrote the Art of War had already been kicking around by the time Mozart was born. Yes. So I never heard that particular way of putting it. Right. So I don't know if that's um, a spin that is kind of like a modern way that makes it sound like, oh, this fits with Sunsa. But it sure sounds like it fits with Sunsa. I could see that. Although, yeah. of course, Sun, Sun Tzu... Uh, sorry, yeah, sorry, I like so like not up with the pronunciation. Sun Tzu... <laughs> you were so sorry, adamant Sun about it when we were doing the medieval Irish episode. <laughs> exactly. Like, it was in my area of expertise. I suddenly right. care. But yeah. no, I'll try my best. So okay. with Sun Tzu, yeah. um, 
the he's he's definitely okay with attacking first. He's okay. definitely okay with aggression. But when yes. the enemy's attacking, he does look for ways to use their aggression against right. them. Right. I just mean right. the part about you use your enemies uh like strength against them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So the way it was explained to me was that was what Moas believed. You never want to be aggressive. It's always destructive. But if someone else is being aggressive, why not just expedite their their own aggression destroying them? Because it's going to do it sooner or later anyway. Mm, okay. And so they became experts in laying traps. Right. Traps so, that would you would lure the enemy in. And because they were so aggressive, because they were dumb enough to attack, they would march into their own demise with little or no effort from your own soldiers. Nice. That was how it was originally explained. Now, having now read the Mozu, that is not accurate. I mean, he, okay. he definitely... Wait, so you're, are you saying that Mozu was not just sitting at the center of a dungeon, just waiting for the PCs to, like, <laughs> destroy them. themselves yes. on all his traps? To just wreck themselves on his traps. That was how it was explained to me, right? <laughs> so, um... Mozu's real name was Gary Gygax, <laughs> the founder of Dungeon and Dragons. Gygax Zoo. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Gygax Zoo. <laughs> <laughs> Master Gygax. Master Gygax. Um, so they, they became experts not just in defensive warfare, but in specifically traps. Mm. And it was further explained to me that they were so much in demand for this, mm -hmm. that if a city was about to come under siege or was coming under siege, and they had a chance to smuggle something in, if they managed to get one little smuggler through who could bring in, what, uh, you know, a, a, a cartload of rice that could help feed the people, more, more bronze to make weapons, more iron. No, the one thing they would want, more than food, more than weapons, would be to smuggle in one Moist scholar. <laughs> seems like fanfic written by yeah, Moist. It really does. So I don't know if there's any historical support for them going to that length. I think that was a bit uh, romanticized, but I would say that, I mean, it's, it certainly seems reasonable that you would try to smuggle into most because they were seen uh, as valuable for defense. Mm -hmm. um, well, I did read a story where uh, there was there was somebody who was going to attack a city mm -hmm. and then the Moists were called, or maybe Moists himself was called, and somehow, in a way that's not explained, as a consequence, um, the, the person didn't attack. Yes. Um, and it could have been that it was just the renown of his defensive ability. I actually have that ability. story if you want. Oh. Yeah. Are we not going to... Okay, so maybe I shouldn't do spoilers? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, no, we, we can actually... We can definitely do that. So, so I, think, I think this is a great uh, illustration okay. of... Because of... I've heard that it's his magical power that defends it. it I heard that it's the strategic power that, that defends it. Or also just that he does like a lot of diplomacy. So. Yeah, it's it's diplomacy. Okay. So, th so this is the the story um, as as it was recorded, okay. right? Um, which I'm sure has been legendized countless ways. Uh -huh. So, uh, I don't unfortunately remember offhand which of the many many states in ancient China it was. Okay. But the ruler of State A mm -hmm. was organizing his forces and getting ready to mount an invasion on State B. Okay. State B being a smaller nation. State B. <laughs> exactly by state a <laughs> i think your tones are way off on that yeah <laughs> so and the most often ended up working for the smaller states because mm -hmm. they were the ones most threatened by invasion right mm -hmm. i mean you're you have these four big players that we talked mm -hmm. about in a previous episode mm -hmm. who were kind of the major states gobbling up smaller land wherever they could so if you were a small state that was still hanging on, you were under constant threat of invasion. Mm -hmm. And so having these defensive strategists who were masters at repelling armies was extremely valuable if you were a small state. Occasionally
occasionally valuable if you're a large one, but not as much so. Mm-hmm. Plus, the large states tended to be the aggressors more often, and therefore the most were perhaps, perhaps, this is speculation, less inclined to work with them. Right. In any case, large state A was planning on invading large state B, and there was enough preparations and raising the army and planning all the equipment and everything going on that this was, you know, noticeable. Mm-hmm. And so uh, word was sent to Mozu that uh, this, this invasion was being planned, and he dropped everything. He rushed day and night, uh, practically, you know, running his feet bloody to get to the court of state A, the, of the aggressor. Mm-hmm. And he managed to get an audience with the ruler of State A Mm -hmm. and said, let me show you what's going to happen to your armies if you attack State B. Mm -hmm. And he said, if I was, if I personally was defending State B, let's say this is their city. Mm -hmm. And he takes his belt and makes it into like a little circle on the ground. So it's like, that's the city wall. Mm-hmm. And then he uses, like, little objects to be all the different, like, soldiers and stuff like that. And he's sure. like, so let's say, what's your first attack? You're going to do this? Okay. Well, let's say you did that. Well, here's what I would do, and here's why that would destroy your attacking men. Mm-hmm. And he's like, well, what if I did this? Well, if you're going to do that, and he rearranges the little part mm-hmm. of uh, little figures and everything. Yeah. He says, well, I would do this, and that's how your men would be destroyed. Mm-hmm. And he goes through every tactic the ruler of State A can come up with mm-hmm. and shows him how he personally would would repel it and destroy his men. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of the conversation, when the ruler is looking a bit like kind of uh, like he's considering this, like, uh, should I hire this man? Like, should I, should I reconsider my tactics? What should I do? Uh, Mozu says, by the way, 300 of my disciples are already on the walls of the city of State B, and they will be ready to repel your army. And the ruler decided, this is not worth it. I'm just going to not invade after all. Yeah. So the invasion was canceled. Yeah. Well, that is the little Moist legend that he So it's he both tactics and diplomacy. Tactics and diplomacy. Yes. Yeah. And I don't know why you wouldn't have just like had Mozu beheaded at that point, but you know, I guess... Yeah, there could have been some <laughs> fudging of the story. It's possible. But right. nevertheless, I think it definitely sets the scene nicely. It sets the scene It gives scene a nicely. nice flavor of like how important... Yes. You know, a little taste of how important... Um, these Moists were and how esteemed they were for their tactics. Exactly. Yeah. So before we get into the defense, and just so everybody knows, if you're listening today, Brandon is going to get the chance to play the part of an aggressor army who is marching on and attempting to take a city, which unfortunately for Brandon is defended by Grandmaster Mo. Right. So I'm going to be the stormtroopers that all die. You (laughs) You never know. I mean, don't be so pessimistic. Okay. All right, well, I do I have mean, a Death Star. Maybe the Confucius are right and most are wrong, and you'll do great. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to get to that, uh, but I want to set the set the scene a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so let me first start by talking about why, like, what, why did the Moists think that aggression was bad, right? Okay. Yeah. So in the Motsu, I will summarize a long and extremely boring passage um, to just give you the, the key points. Mm-hmm. Motsu had three arguments for why you should not perform aggressive warfare. Mm-hmm. The first one is the moral argument, right? So he says, it's not virtuous to be the aggressor. Mm-hmm. And he gives examples. He says, if a man comes into another man's house and he steals his belongings, we can see that that's not virtuous and we would punish him for that. Yeah. If a man comes in the man's uh, lands and he steals all of his uh, farm animals, that's an even bigger crime. We consider that even less virtuous because it does even more harm to the man that he's stealing it from. Mm-hmm. And we would punish him even more severely. If a man came into a man's house and he murdered the man... That is an even bigger crime. He's doing even more harm to the man, unprovoked, and so we would punish him most severely. Mm-hmm. So if a man marches into another man's kingdom mm-hmm. and 
takes his cities, uh, conquers his people, carries off all of his food, all of his wealth. This is the biggest harm that can possibly be performed. And yet now the barons say that is virtue. Right. But clearly that is not virtue. Yeah, I love that passage. Yes. Yeah, it's just so clear. It's a very strong argument. It's hard to argue with that. Right. Yeah. And now that is a moral argument, but he's not going to rely on morals alone. He now moves to a utilitarian argument, Mm -hmm. and he discusses how actually aggressive warfare is fruitless, Mm -hmm. and how the reason you set off an aggressive warfare is because you want more lands, Mm -hmm. more titles, more treasure, etc. You want to profit by it. But he starts to talk about the amount of equipment you lose all the armor, all the weapons that are not going to come back from that campaign. Right. All the, the menu, All the people, yes. The men who you lose who could be farming land and enriching you. Yeah. Right? And he goes through the long list of everything that a campaign costs. And this is pretty true. I mean, ancient, I mean, not unlike today, mm-hmm. uh, ancient warfare was extremely costly. Yeah. Right? There's a great Game of Thrones quote, which I'm just yeah. going to throw in here, <laughs> which is that uh, wars swallow up gold. Uh-huh. Right? And that's true. Mm-hmm. So he goes into the cost of warfare and he points out how you might eventually manage to take some land or mm-hmm. take some treasure, but you spend so much to get it that it's yeah. a wash. Yeah. So it's utilitarian. And then, the, like, his interlocutors, like, come back and say, yeah, but look at the Sage King. So, like, you know, some of them, they, like, waged aggressive warfare and they took, a, you know, and then his response to that. Right. And that's the third great argument is that actually the Sage Kings would never have performed aggressive warfare mm-hmm. because his interlocutors have these examples of, well, what about this Sage King who conquered mm-hmm. this kingdom? Which, to, just to just to call back to the previous episodes, yeah. like... Everybody was on the same page, pretty much, in ancient China, that right. the sage kings were always right. They had it going so on. So if you were spouting a philosophy that went against, apparently, what the sage kings did, yeah. you must be wrong. You had to back up your ideas with yeah. a precedent from the sage kings. Yeah. You had yeah. to make it sound like the sage kings would have believed your side. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, Motsu goes through and analyzes each of their examples of, allegedly, mm-hmm. a sage king aggressively attacking a neighbor and conquering it. Mm-hmm. And he shows how this almost never happened among the Sage Kings mm-hmm. and how actually the only times in all of the annals of the Sage Kings that they did this, it was when there was clear divine mandate mm-hmm. where, as we've discussed in the previous episode, yeah. there was sort of this, the way that nature works is it is it sort of wants rulers to behave a certain way and to yeah. run their dynasty a certain way. Yeah. And if they stray too far from that, it's not as if the deities choose to punish you. It's uh-huh. almost as if a natural force just kind of snaps back. Yeah. As you said, putting your hand too close to fire, you will burn your hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you act too unvirtuously as a ruler, you will lose your kingdom. Mm-hmm. Um, and he shows all of the omens that each of these uh, kingdoms that were invaded had. And he makes the argument, and I think this is a little bit of a stretch, but he <laughs> says, this was not an example of, gre- of aggressive warfare. This was an example of punishment. Right. You were Punitive going and... Warfare. Exactly. Yeah. You were punishing a ruler who had clearly lost the favor of heaven yeah. and was no longer, no longer had a mandate to yeah. rule. Which to me sounds like possibly that might have been a later argument added in mm. to, you know, respond to people who were like, but, but, you know. Right. Like, well, that wasn't really aggressive warfare. It was actually punitive warfare. So I'm still right. Kind of a thing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Now, but I... also he did say, he did say that, yes, a very few lords may have enriched their kingdoms through aggressive warfare and succeeded. 
but how many also failed? And right. so if a doctor administered a medicine yeah. that worked on like one person but failed on 99 of them, how yeah. good is that doctor? Yeah, he's got, yeah. he's like, you're like, yeah, you've cured three people and, and 10,000 die. Yeah. How good is this doctor? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it's just time and time again, his, his argument is you're going to lose more than you gain. Yeah. Um, and he has a bunch of other kind of little side supporting arguments, but that's what it comes down to. Number one, it's not virtuous. It's a clear yeah. breach of what we consider virtue in any other context. Number two, it's not practical from a utilitarian perspective. You will lose more than you gain. And number three, it does not accord with the strategies of the ancient sage kings. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I read the doctrinal parts of this. <laughs> so, but I'm looking forward to everything that you throw at me here during the role play. But, yeah. All right. So uh, that is why the Moists yeah. were against aggressive warfare. Uh-huh. But they were not strict pacifists. They did not believe it was always wrong to fight. And they certainly did not believe it was wrong to defend yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, so they did become experts in defensive warfare. And the Motsu text is, of course, um, primarily the philosophy of Motsu, but a substantial section of it, um, over 100 pages in translation, is literally just a manual of how to defend a city. Yeah. It's a major part of what they taught and were known for. Yeah. Um, and so I want to give a, a kind of a snapshot of what defensive warfare was like in this time period. Okay. Because um, Motsu's recommendations are, in some cases, quite uh, almost extravagant. Uh-huh. The, the types of tactics and the resources he, he pictures you using. Uh-huh. Um, but I want to give a sense of like where ancient China was at with defensive warfare at this time. Okay. So... What, I don't know. If you're like me, uh, I you know, full disclosure, I'm a white Midwestern guy, right? <laughs> so I grew up thinking like knights with swords from medieval Europe were cool, and that's kind of like my uh, my touchstone for like ancient warfare. Even though it's not ancient, it's medieval. Nerd, exactly. <laughs> Nerd, exactly. That's exactly what my child was like. Yes, <laughs> I would literally make armor mm-hmm. out of like paper bags and boxes and wear it around. My brother and I would make swords out of layoth wood and we would yes. spend like a month crafting it and then fight and they'd be broken Just destroyed. less than like three minutes <laughs> go on i love it so um when i picture besieging a town a walled town or yeah. a castle i picture the european medieval model yeah. which is that you might have some outer fortifications, but for the most part, you're relying on one curtain wall like yeah. one outlying ring wall around mm-hmm. the stuff um, and the whole point is that the defenders stay behind the wall where it is safe and they try to prevent the attacker from getting in or over or through the wall. Right. This is not the ancient Chinese approach to defensive warfare. Okay. So right. in this period, in the Warring States period, we are looking at a civilization that has a tradition of defensive fortifications that goes back not to a few hundred years ago, uh-huh. not to China's Bronze Age, not to China's uh, earliest mythical hist- historic period, okay. but to the Neolithic period. And according to some sources... Okay, so we're not at all talking about Great Wall stuff here. Don't no, not yet. That. No. no. But their defensive fortification history or prehistory yeah. goes back, according to some sources, to before the Neolithic period. Before the Stone Age? In the, before the Late Stone Age. Oh, right, right, because the Paleolithic was also stone tools still. Yeah. Okay, so so before agriculture, mm -hmm. though. Yes, correct. Okay, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, of course, in those very early finds, uh, what we're talking about is not a castle, you know, the the late Paleolithic. We're talking about that, you know, a settlement or a place that was used as a, a strong point would have had a ditch around it, and then the earth from the ditch would have been heaped up as a wall inside the ditch. 
Interesting. Defensive wall to defensive uh, ditch. Now, that is something we don't see until, as far as I know, the Bronze Age in Northern Europe. What were they defending against? Because if it was before even agriculture, what were they storing up that would be, you know, wanted to be defended? I don't know the answer to that. I wish I knew the answer to that. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, China here. And I also wonder if it was some, like, hybrid. I mean, at least least once you get into the Neolithic era, if there might have been some early, like, shepherding or primitive agriculture or something like that mm-hmm. um, or if it would have been a ceremonial site that they need to defend but I don't know why you'd attack a ceremonial site if there's no even, wealth there even why walls would have a symbolic value if you don't have actual need for yeah, walls exactly. in the rest of your life exactly you know yeah and this feeds walls, into ditches, but still well, yeah, well they had a ditch and a, an earth embankment wall as well yeah, yeah right um, and this feeds into how fortifications develop in China because Whereas I think of a European castle as being with a stone wall whenever possible, mm-hmm. um, China did not go that route. They were not big on building. They certainly had. They certainly had stone walls. Mm-hmm. They, they built were not big on. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like our cultural sensitivity meter is just like. Oops! <laughs> 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 Come on, Brandon. Um, no, but they they uh, they had a heavy emphasis on earth walls. So even into the Warring States period. Now this is an Iron Age civilization. Oh, was it? Didn't they have a, a god of walls and ditches? Even I don't know in their mythology. I think they did. Probably. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the Romans had a god of thieves, so I mean, yeah. you might as well. Yeah. The yeah. Chinese, I think, had a a specific god of walls and ditches. I Seems remember. like a more useful yeah. god. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so. The, the Chinese in the Warring States period would typically build all of their outer fortifications out of an earth embankment wall, mm-hmm. which would then be faced, if need be, with some brick. Mm-hmm. Um, often wouldn't be. Mm-hmm. They'd simply pound it tight and coat it with a, a, a coating, like a sealant, mm-hmm. um, not unlike making a packed earth floor, which would typically have some kind of sealant over it. Okay. Um, and this was a substantial obstacle. And I love this distinction because in, in Europe, if you're building an actual stone wall around your entire castle, you have a few problems. Mm-hmm. The first problem is it takes a lot of time and resources to build it. Yeah. Um, the second problem is you probably can't make it around a very large perimeter. You have mm-hmm. to make it kind of as small as possible with a keep inside, maybe a few crucial buildings, yeah. but as small as you can. Yeah. In China, they're making earth walls, mm-hmm. which can be made much more quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the earth that you dig out of the ditch goes up onto the wall. Goes up on the wall, exactly. So it's like you don't lose any resources. You, exactly. It's yeah. very efficient. And what this led to was expansive, gigantic fortifications in China, even in 5th century, 4th century BCE. Mm-hmm. So to put it in perspective, one ancient Chinese city in this period, the city of Chang'an, mm-hmm. had 17-foot-high walls, which surrounded... 21,250 acres, or 33 square miles. Oh, my God. Okay. Circled by walls. Uh-huh. Right? And there would not for just be... Sheep. For their <laughs> Or whatever it was Whatever. Had. Right. And there was not just one layer of walls, uh-huh. right? This was not a situation where the enemy comes up to the wall, and you fight them off, and you hope that they go away. Uh-huh. This was a situation where you'd have layer after layer of walls and fortifications so that you could fall back from the outer layers. Wow. To an into a more interior layer. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, I actually liken this to a tactic that we see in World War I. Uh-huh. Uh, World War trench I. warfare. Yes. Yeah. Contrary to what we often picture, it wasn't just my trench on this side, your trench on that side, and we're both shooting each other, right. and I rush over and try to overrun you. It was really that I would have a, an outer trench, 
and then another trench, uh, maybe 500 to 1,000 feet back, and yep. another trench, maybe a quarter mile back. Yep. And the whole point of the outmost trench was that these guys were expendable, right? <laughs> yep. I mean, they, they were only there for one purpose, which is that when you charge, they will soften you up. Yep. And we're not saying they're all going to die. They might be able to fall back successfully. But the point is that they're not going to hold the line, and we never expect them to hold the line. Right. The plan from the start is that they soften you up, and they fall back to trench number two. Yep. And then your guys reach trench number two. And if you still have some steam, they soften you up even more because it's a more heavily fortified yeah. trench. But we kind of don't think that trench is going to hold either if yeah. you're really trying. And then all those guys can maybe fall back to trench number three. And even if they're wiped out, yeah. trench number three is the heaviest fortified of all. And by the time your enemy charge reaches trench number three, the one that you actually have to overrun to have a victory of any kind uh -huh. and break through, you've lost your steam. Yeah, it'll be like hitting a rubber band and eventually you snap back. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. And so that seems to be the tactic that was being used in ancient China at this time. Mm -hmm. You would have uh, as just standard, this is out of the box, like not a particularly well fortified city, just a regular city, mm -hmm. would have one city wall. Mm -hmm. Outside of that city wall would be a moat, which mm -hmm. could be a dry moat or could be filled with water. Mm -hmm. And then outside of that moat would be a second city wall. Mm-hmm. Not just a palisade, a second entire city wall. Uh -huh. And then outside of that, you would have palisades and additional obstructions. Okay. I've occasionally seen that kind of setup in uh, European medieval castles. Uh -huh. It's rare. I can, yeah. I can think of like three castles in all of Europe. If we're talking about before like the canon era, right? Castles sure. from the medieval era. Yeah. Right. I can think of maybe three castles that have that kind of setup. It's it's yeah. rare in the West. And I realize, you know, I'm kind of comparing medieval Europe to very ancient China. Right. If you compare Still. classical, like Roman and Greek, they did have some larger, more developed things. But I, I just don't see this kind of scale mm -hmm. in the West in that right. time period. Yeah. So that's what we're dealing with. Makes me not want to charge a city. <laughs> you know what? I'll pass. I'll just take the farmland. <laughs> just just stay city. home. Farm yeah. it up. Yep. Oh, you mean the farmland outside the city? I'll take the farmland outside the city oh, good and starve you out. Right, yeah. Right. Yeah. So, uh, that's kind of that's, what... <laughs> when we get to the role play, I'm just going to be the... It's like, the, no. The, 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 the really just, like, shitty player who's like, I'm not going on the adventure. <laughs> I stay at the inn. <laughs> Usually, well, you converted to Moism. So, I mean, I kind yeah. of, you know, I'm doing exactly what Mo, <laughs> Mo Tzu did to the ruler of State A, right? Yeah. Like, you're right. seeing how hard it is to defend. Yeah. But so this so far is actually just what a regular Chinese city mm. would have. This is without the addition of the defensive strategies of mm. Motsu. Yeah. Right. Um, and I, I think there's a couple things going on here. One is that they seemed from from the from what I was reading, they seem to have a very large labor force available to work on defensive structures. Mm -hmm. um, well, it was a relatively large state for yeah. the time. I yeah. Mean, it was. I mean, it's big today. It wasn't as as big as it is now. But even then, it was huge yes. for the standards of the time. Yeah. Yeah. So they had a lot of people to draw on. Exactly. Sure. The large labor force, um, they were making the earth embankment walls, so they're faster and easier to build. I mean, still quite a great labor. Mm -hmm. um, and that was that was kind of the deal. Um, so this is, this is our situation, Brad. Okay. So you are the general mm -hmm. of an invading army. Okay. You have come to take a city. Unbeknownst to you, that city is defended by Grandmaster Mo. No, <laughs> well, I don't know that. So I'm of like, course, yeah. I'm still doing plotty. Figures. You're confident. Yes, yeah. exactly. Um, now let me tell you what you've been through just to get to the city. Okay. All right. You've been advancing through enemy territory. 
you have been surprised by how fortified their roads are. In many places, the roads themselves have walls along both sides from which people can attack your army as you move through, unless you completely clear the area first. Okay. When you pass through crucial positions, such as valleys and passes, you often find that the road passes between three separate military outposts, uh-huh. equidistantly spaced around the road, so that you cannot attack all three of them at once. If you attack one, all of them are equidistant, so they can all come to support each other. Okay. And if you don't attack them, they have a clear firing range onto the road as you pass by. Okay. I have a plan already. Oh, good. (laughs) (laughs) Many places, you find that hidden markers have been placed along the road or in fields. Okay. That are hard to notice at first, but when your army passes by them, scouts note that you have passed the markers, and they rise up from their hiding positions and raise signals. And when the signals are raised, within minutes, light attacking forces show up to skirmish with your army Mm -hmm. at the most inconvenient places. Mm -hmm. Here and there, you attempt to raid walled towns to get food. For walled towns, they are surprisingly well defended, as if relief forces had been sent from the city that you were eventually going to reach. And as soon as your forces reach the outer parapet of the city, the defenders disappear. They melt away as if pulling back to the main city. Mm-hmm. When you finally get into the walled town, you find that the long timbers of the houses have been removed. The most valuable stones have been removed. The wells have been filled in or poisoned with herbs. This is in the, the towns outside. Outside. Where I'm outlying yeah. towns. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Um, so they, they've left no resources for me to use. Nothing. Not even All the like, food timbers. has been removed. Everything. Yes. Okay. And when finally you reach the area immediately outside the city, you find that every house, all of their own houses outside the city walls, have been demolished. Every tree has been cut down and taken for timber or burned. And there is just an area of devastation around the city, providing you no cover and no hiding places, not a single resource to use. Mm -hmm. You have arrived at your target. Yay! <laughs> I have one hit point left. <laughs> no so, place to rest my party. <laughs> so here's how this is going to work. In ancient Chinese defensive warfare, yes. even if you were a Moist, you would not necessarily expect that a city could hold out forever. Mm-hmm. The point of defensive warfare was to hold out long enough that another army from an allied city somewhere else in your state could be raised mm-hmm. and brought to relieve you. Sure. Okay. So according to your best intelligence from your own scouts and outriders, Mm -hmm. you believe that it will take a good 14 days, Mm -hmm. two weeks, for the nearest allied city to your target Mm -hmm. to raise an army and come and try to try to relieve the city. And do I think that that army is equal to my own or can I fight them off and continue the siege? Uh, it's hard to say. It okay. would be a substantial army. It would be, let's say, on okay, a, a, a tough relatively fight. even par with okay. your own. All right. Yeah, Exactly. There are essentially three layers of fortifications before you Mm -hmm. that you have to get past in order to take the the city. Mm -hmm. There are the outer trenches, is what I'm going to call them, which Mm -hmm. includes all the outer fortifications beyond any of the walls. All those towns. Oh, no, you're past the towns. Oh, there's more layers. Oh, yeah, this is... I mean, towns are behind you at this point, but they're just the fences and barricades and obstructions have been put outside the city walls, right? right. So a large area of trenches and obstructions Mm -hmm. between you and the first city wall. Okay. That'll be the first area. Okay. If you can get past that, there's the outer city wall, which you have to deal with. Okay. Now, if you can get past that, there is the moat and the inner city wall, which will be the third area. Okay. If you can crack all of those, you might be able to take the city, but you have but 14 days, if your scouts are right, to do it. 
I have only two weeks. Yes. Okay. So the first area you have to overcome is the trenches. That's what I'm going to call them. Uh-huh. Not exactly trenches. There are some trenches, but it's fences and barricades and all kinds of stuff. I'm going to give you a choice of uh, routes of attack you can take. Yeah. And you can choose one and we'll see what happens. And some routes of attack may open up other routes of attack mm-hmm. or other options. Mm-hmm. Okay. So here are your choices in the outside, outer defenses, the trench area. You can surge the picket fences. Okay. You can assault the palisades. Wait, what's the difference between a picket fence and a palisade? So the picket fences are uh, a series of lower fences about five feet tall. Okay. Um, which would be, uh, well, that's what they are. And the palisades are more like tall log walls, which would be more like a solid wall to deal with. And um, it's so one it's... inside the other? Or are they at different places? So these are different places. Generally, the Palisades, uh, they probably, it looks like they probably didn't have enough timber to put the Palisades around the entire perimeter of the city. Or that's what they wanted me to think. That's also possible. I like that you're already in the game theory of this. (laughs) So your choices are search the picket fences, assault the Palisades, or use your guy on the inside. Oh, definitely the guy on the inside. Yeah, I agree with that first. Oh, no question. Okay, great. Yeah. So the guy on the inside. This was a big fear in defending ancient cities. Okay was that the wealthy people and the aristocrats of the city know and may be related to mm-hmm. wealthy people and aristocrats in other cities and even other states. Yeah. And so when your army is invading, there's a decent chance that somebody on the inside of the city yep. is a cousin or married to the so-and-so of so-and-so of somebody mm-hmm. on, in your army. Yeah. So they're always concerned about uh, what, if, what if somebody is going to help the enemy and try yeah. to let them in. A fifth column. You have a guy on the inside. Yes. This is somebody who you have promised, he's a general who commands several thousand men. Mm-hmm. You've promised that if he can, at your signal, when you are ready, if at your signal he will come and open the outer city gate, mm-hmm. you will reward him by making him the governor of the city when you take it. Mm-hmm. Now my question for you, Brandon, is what is your signal? What signal do you use so that your guy on the inside knows it is time to come and, and open the gate? Am I able to communicate with him to tell him what I've chosen as a signal? Or is this something that had to have been established He long, would know the signal ago? which was established before you arrived. Okay. So, so the I... question is, you just described to me what that signal is. Because I'm kind of curious. Like, what are you going to use as a signal for him to know? Okay. I would use... Well, it has to be something you can see from inside the city. Yeah. Above all those walls and things, right? Yeah. yeah. So I guess I would use campfires. Okay. With smoke of a certain color. Uh, or maybe, let's make this extra Chinese by saying, like, using firecrackers at a time that's, like, not appropriate for the festivals or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> okay, excellent. Okay, yeah. so you have these fires going and there are firecrackers going off. Yeah, that are and creating the... a certain pattern of smoke that's unique to firecrackers, right. perhaps. And I have to say that as far as I can tell, I, yeah. I don't know that they had firecrackers at this time period. Yeah, but, but they got them really early, though. They so... did have them very early. Yeah. And there was at least one reference in the Motsu to using a thunderstone when the enemy is attacking, which yeah. I could imagine being a firecracker. Yeah. So maybe they did have them. I, I don't know offhand. I don't know. Yeah. In any case, special smoke. You're going to use special smoke. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, I'm just going to tell all of the listeners that uh, this takes place in the Zhou era. Uh-huh. And many parts of the uh, Motsu are hard to translate or are left vague and unexplained. Yeah. So I am filling in some parts with my sure. imagination, which means we're considering this a Zhou punk episode yeah. <laughs> it's as historical as it can be yeah. but just like steampunk is kind of historical yeah. in the victorian area but a little bit made up we all have that's goggles what this is. we all have <laughs> grandmaster mode definitely has goggles that's my <laughs> new picture of him yeah. okay so you are going to use your guy on the inside okay so you use your signal uh-huh. there's colored smoke yeah. there are out of season fireworks yeah um inside 
This general knows it's time. He hears the sound. He's had somebody watching on the wall. He knows it's time. And his plan is simple. All he has to do is exit the gatehouse of the city itself mm-hmm. and ride at full speed with his thousands of men behind him mm-hmm. to the outer gatehouse and take it and open the gates. Mm-hmm. And he will become governor. Okay. Unfortunately, he does not have dispensation to leave the gatehouse of the inner city, which means he does not have a signal flag which he can display. Okay. It's okay. He's relying on speed to, to get by. Uh-huh. And so he charges through the gate of the city. And this is what happens. Uh-huh. The level of order and organization inside the city is impeccable. And orders have been given to all of the forces on the walls. But if a general or an officer of any rank, no matter how many men they command, departs the gates without proper signal flags, they are to be destroyed. And so as he rides from the inner city gate to the outer city gate, no one asks what's going on. No one sends a messenger to ask him why he has left. And I'm guessing that that signal flag stipulation is actually in the text it's of the Motsu. in the Motsu text. Okay. Yeah, this yep. is one of his specific stipulations. Yeah. Yep. So that even a general of 10,000 men, actually I think he goes up to general of several thousand or whatever. Yeah. If he is leaving if his post or moving troops or leaving the gate without his proper signal flag, which would have been checked with the officers above him. Mm-hmm. You don't bother to ask questions. There's no moment of confusion. Shoot What's first. going on? So all the forces on the wall without question open up on their own men, uh-huh. the general's men as he leads them away, yep. and the forces holding the outer gatehouse open up on him as well. He is massacred in the field. All of his men are lost, oh. and he is put to death. Damn it. Now, is you know was... nothing of this. What you do know yeah. is that you do the signal, uh-huh. and no- nobody comes to help you out. And then you hear something. Uh-huh. You <laughs> you hear the voice of Master Mo, Grandmaster Mo. <laughs> He's not like appearing to me like Obi Wan Kenobi. I hear him from the walls or something. Yeah, you can picture it as like you just hear his voice on the wind, or I, I like to picture it as like he you see him like perched on the topmost branch of a tree, but like light as a bird, as if he weighs nothing, like with the kung fu. The Taoist version. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, where he's like an immortal with magic powers. Exactly. Yeah. So as no one comes to your aid, the gates don't open. Your signal seems to go unheeded. You hear the voice of Grandmaster Mo. Ha! A wise commander knows that to rely on men of virtue will produce faithful results, but to rely on men without virtue will produce scattered results. You have chosen to rely on a man without virtue, and you have received exactly what you requested. (laughs) Is this where I ring the gong? I think you should ring the gong. Yeah, so we have prearranged that every time I fail in battle, I have to ring the gong. Fail number one. <laughs> oh, but I get to try again, right? Oh yeah, you okay. have you have options left. Okay. Uh, so you can surge the picket fences or assault the palisades. Okay, but it, but it's like it's not like it's not like winding back the clock. Like okay, I failed, but I have resources left, and now I'm going forward after this fail and trying again. Right? That is correct. Although yeah. I should tell you that you you spent a day waiting for the gates to open. Mm-hmm. So now instead of fourteen days left, there are thirteen. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, picket fences or or palisades. the palisades. Damn it. Okay. All right. So the picket fences are obviously easier to get over, but they might have intentionally left a weak point so that they can funnel me to where they are going to concentrate their forces. Hmm. So I'm going to have my scouts look at the arrangement of the palisades versus the picket fences. Is it mostly palisades and like 
one or two places right. of picket fences that are easily defensible, or are there lots of picket fences all around? Right. So it seems like areas in front of main gates of the city have been covered with pal, like the, the area in front of them would be protected with palisades. Um, and then okay. areas that are more uh, peripheral would be protected with picket fences. It so it could realistically be that they just didn't have enough resources. It could be. Okay. Yeah. And since you're sending out scouts, I'll also say that you, you actually, I was going to say this unless you chose it, but since you've sent out scouts, you actually, the scouts report that most of the palisades look very strong and sturdily built, but there is one area where they appear to be more weak, as if you could maybe very easily rush the gate and break it just because it wasn't set in the ground very well. Where the, the foundation is for On the palisades. Yeah. Okay. And so it sounds like if I rush the picket fences, after that, if I succeed at that, I'll be inside, but I'll still have to run around then to where the palisades are. Even though I'll be behind the palisades, but I have to run around to that area to get you into the gates. You still have to reach the gates. Yeah, yes. Correct. Okay. Yeah, it feels like a trap, but I'm still going to go with the picket fences. Picket fences. Yeah. All right. So these are bamboo fences. Okay. They're only about five feet tall, but they do present a barrier to your approach. Mm-hmm. As your men swarm in, you see awful war machines swivel around on raised platforms above the picket walls. As the Wait, machines... why couldn't I see them then from before? Oh, they, you could see that there were some shields on raised platforms, which would be part of a regular okay, defense. Okay, but I couldn't see the engines. That there was a, some kind of war machine behind yeah. it. Okay. Yes. As, <laughs> as the machines start up, you realize too late... That they Wait, are. What does startup mean for ancient? As Chinese they swivel engine? towards you, they swivel. Okay, yeah. <laughs> you realize too late that they are rotating auto crossbows, which was a real thing, right? Which is a real thing. Yeah, their fully automatic fire lays into your men, supported by skilled archers behind the picket. Damn it! I'm going to pause here. Yeah. And talk about these auto crossbows. Okay. Now there is almost no description in the Motsu text about what they are, okay. except that they are definitely swiveling uh, shooting machines. Okay. And he describes how to build an armored housing of shields over them, which still has a space for their like actuating arm to reach out to a bracket behind them and all this detailed okay. stuff, okay. but allows them to be fully armored, so it's not easy to take them out. Oh, damn now, these engineers. The, the best two things about this are, number one, since he doesn't describe the machine itself in detail, mm-hmm. that implies that this was not something he had to propose or explain to his audience. The generals would have been like, oh, yeah, the rotating auto crossbows. Yeah, those things. Uh-huh. Which is amazing. <laughs> and in case, okay, as, yeah. as I would be, in case you're kind of thinking like, did they really have rotating auto crossbows? Um, the ancient Greeks, we know from, from records, did build a machine like this. It was called a polybolos in ancient Greek, okay. uh, which yeah, I think just means smart. like multi-shot, like okay. multi-arrow. Um, so it's just like a gigantic, like, ballista-sized crossbow with a hopper of bolts above it. Mm-hmm. And it's all got a crank that you turn, which drives a chain, which pulls back the firing uh, cord and drops uh, a single bolt in place. Mm-hmm. And then it just fires and you keep cranking and it does it again. Okay. Now in ancient Greece, so you've got your your um, what's your magazine loaded yes, above the crossbow above. and it drops in. Correct. Gotcha. Ancient ancient Greece, Ballista, right? these were considered to be somewhat useless, ingenious, but not that practical because they were fixed. They were gigantic fixed war machines, and it would just fire a constant stream of, of bolts at in just only one, one spot. Direction. You couldn't yeah. aim it, right? Okay. I mean, you yeah. could put it kind of in position, but you weren't swiveling it around. Might be useful in attacking a city, but not in defending. Potentially. Yeah. Yeah. The Chinese appear to have had a version of this where they had managed to mount it on some kind of swiveling mount. Okay. So that not only could you fire it at a steady rate, mm-hmm. but you could turn it from side to side and rake the enemy with fully automatic fire. I'm starting to believe the Chinese when they say that they did everything better and everything better. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yes. The propaganda is, is really getting to me. 
Now, I, I cannot vouch 100% that this auto crossbow was real and worked well and yeah. swiveled and was hard to hit because of yeah. its shield mechanism. Yeah. All I can say is I'm going to play the optimist on here because I right. think it's cool. Yeah. So this is Joe Punk. <laughs> yes. All right. Right. So their fully automatic fire lays into your men supported by skilled archers behind the picket. The areas between each rotating auto crossbow are kill boxes uh-huh. and the auto crossbows are armored with a shield housing. Inevitably, a few of your men do manage to break through, and they find that the bamboo fences run back from the picket line all the way to the outer wall, creating a kill chute. Across the chute, there are barriers of brushwood, which are lit on fire as you approach, hedging you in. The enemy is so confident in this defense that they've only placed a single crossbowman every 50 feet to finish you off. And indeed, Brandon, your attack fails. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Who decided on attacking the picket fences? You? You're executed. Executed. <laughs> Got her. I'm afraid that does bring you down to only 12 days remaining in your timeline. Well, I still got 12 more days. Yeah. And only one more option. My choice is clear. <laughs> That's true. So you do have the, the remaining choice is assault on the Palisades. Uh-huh. Do you want to choose the place where the Palisades appear to have not been built as well and it might be weaker? Or a place where they are just normal, regular palisades. Okay. Well, I've realized by this point that these Moists, they live up to their reputation. They're pretty wily and confident, damn it. So I'm going to guess that it's not really shoddy construction. They've probably done that on purpose and are trying to lure me into a trap. Right. So I'm going to go for the stronger palisade fortifications and attack there. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. You've chosen wisely, by the way. Yes. yes. <laughs> the weak palisades were definitely left as a trap. Okay. Uh, so you assault the palisades where they are stronger. Okay. These are heavier defensive walls made of logs. Okay. They're quite tall, but there are periodic gatehouses. And you manage to swarm and attack one of the gatehouses. Now, by sheer force of numbers, you are able to break through the gate. Mm-hmm. The men who break through find themselves in between the outer palisade and an inner palisade mm-hmm. in sort of a corridor. Okay. And they can see that if yep. they go hundreds yep. of feet in this direction, or hundreds of feet in that direction, they could reach another gatehouse, which would take them past that inner palisade. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they have to start running toward one of these gatehouses. Yes. They also start to notice that every so many feet, every 10 feet or so, there's a stake driven in the palisade wall with a hook on it. Okay. Now, men on platforms behind the inner palisade... Wait, is palisade, the hook sticking out toward me? Yeah, into the corridor that your men are running through. Yeah, yeah okay. Right. Men, Stationary. Yeah, it's just it's just hanging there. Okay. Yeah. Men on platforms inside the inner palisade reach over the wall and hang baskets of brush and leaves from the hooks and put a torch to them. Okay, so You're, there's fire by the walls, but I can avoid that. Well, you are in a corridor. Yeah. Like a 10-foot wide corridor between palisades. So the kind smoke of... is going to get exactly. me. Exactly. The area fills with smoke. It's hard to see. You begin uh-huh. choking. And all of their archers and crossbowmen come up from behind the walls and start uh-huh. shooting into the death corridor, tossing rocks down on you. Whose idea was this? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm afraid that this attack eventually also fails. Ah, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> But I've got, like, what, 11 more days? You do have 11, oh 11 more days. Okay. Yeah. Now, a new option is going to open up here. 
Okay. Um, you have you've tested their defenses. Yes. You have found that the outer defenses are quite strong. Uh huh. And if you so choose, you can use the ant approach. The ant approach is swarming thousands and thousands of men like an army of ants. Yep. And just throwing them all at one place and hoping to just purely overrun it. Also known as the Zerg Rush in Warhammer. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And in fact, since that's your only option remaining, mm-hmm. I'm just going to tell you, it works. Okay. Now, Mozu... That sounds... I'm, I'm more scared than anything now. Exactly. Mozu has defenses for the ant approach. Yeah. Um, and I don't think he would agree it works. But I'm going to say in the interest of getting you forward to the okay. next ring of, of cool stuff. Okay. Uh, that eventually, I mean, you have an entire army. Yeah. If you throw it all at one point, sooner yeah. or later, you'll break through. Okay. So we're going to say that you've, you've passed by the trench area. Okay. And you're now facing the outer wall area. Mm-hmm. So I have army ants rushing over the walls. Correct. Okay. Yeah. So the outer wall. You have some, uh, some new options here. Okay. Attack of the cloud ladders. Mm. Is your first option. Okay. Bring in the approacher. Is okay. your second option. Your third option. Sudden strike at the sally port. Huh. Okay. Next, capture a scout. Uh-huh. Or last, try a night attack. Wow, I've got five options. You do. Okay. Okay, so cloud ladders, approacher, sally port. Mm-hmm. What's the fourth one? Capture a scout. Capture a scout. And night attack. Correct. God. Okay, so I'm figuring the approacher is probably some kind of like like a walled vehicle that a lot of men can hide inside yeah. and then it like, it's like drops a siege up. tower. Yeah, like a siege yeah. tower. Yeah. The cloud ladders sound pretty freaking awesome. <laughs> but I bet they're just really, really tall ladders. It's a ladder like device. Yeah. Okay. So I really want to do the cloud ladders, but we'll get there. Okay. okay. So I think the night attack. Okay. Yeah. Night attack. Yeah. Sounds um, the most dramatic. I like it. I like it. Here's my question for you. Okay. Are you going to have your night attack soldiers wearing light colored clothing or dark colored clothing? Dark. Dark colored clothing. Yeah. Okay. Sounds good. Neon. Um, what's that? Neon. Glow in the dark. Raver. <laughs> Joe Punk. Yes. Yeah. So your soldiers go in and attempt their uh-huh. night raid. Yeah. Normally with a night raid, you will sooner or later be detected approaching. Mm-hmm. You're relying on the chaos and the sudden, like, stealth attack factor of yep. your attack, yep. right? So, your men slip past any outer defenses. Mm-hmm. They approach the wall, and they see a sally port that has a gathering of men outside of it. And they go straight for that, thinking it must be open to let the men in and out. Mm-hmm. As they attack, as they get closer, they realize that the men that they are attacking are dummies who were put outside the sally port intentionally in case uh-huh. of night attack. Uh-huh. When the men on the wall see that someone is attacking the dummies, the goblet lighting system activates. Goblet lighting system. <laughs> so it's like signals? Grandmaster Mo has proposed that you should have what he calls goblets hollowed out in the outside face of your wall. Okay. These are basically, if you can picture like a, a lancet window or like okay. an archery window, you know how it's kind of like a tiny narrow slit that you can see through, but it gets it's wider uh, toward the outside of the wall. Yeah. Right? Yeah, that's sort of what these things are like. Okay. So it's just enough of an opening that you can reach through from the inside and place a like a single reed torch mm-hmm. in in the opening. Mm-hmm. But because it kind of widens out, it it actually is a large reflective face. Oh, okay. So these are placed at two different heights. Is he making spotlights? It's not as good as a spotlight. It's, it's not mobile. It's more like floodlight. Yeah, yeah. 
So these are placed at alternating heights every so many feet. Uh-huh. And when someone attacks the dummies below, yeah. a drum starts up, indicating a night attack. Uh-huh. Signal fires go up along the wall to uh-huh. alert people to an attack. Yeah. And the goblet lights are all lit. So suddenly the entire wall lights up and it is an illuminating force. Uh-huh. Uh, because the light can't blind the, the defenders of the wall because they're on the wall. The wall is blocking the light from them, but it does reflect back at you and completely illuminate the battlefield so that all their archers just start laying into you. It destroys my infravision, too. It destroys your infravision. <laughs> and I, have, I regret to inform you that the few of your men who managed to struggle away from the kill zone uh-huh. are wearing all black. They are not in uniform, and they are hard to spot. They cannot communicate with each other. And there is some friendly fire as they approach your own lines because oh. people cannot identify who is approaching. Okay. Yeah. So the attack fails. And <sighs> wait, wait, wait for the yeah. gong. Yeah. Ha! Perhaps if you treated all people under heaven with the same regard with which you treat your own family, you would not have wandered into this pointless disaster. I shouldn't have gone with the boob armor. The boob armor did it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Yes. All right. All right. <laughs> what, what options have I got left? We still got four more options. You've got uh, and uh, I have some good news. This yeah. is a silver lining. Okay. That does not take any days off your counter because it was nighttime. You wouldn't have done anything at night okay. anyway. So it doesn't delay your, your plan. Do I have to rest up afterward and lose a day? I mean, those guys are all dead, so there's not much resting to do. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> you send the survivors home to their family. Okay. So you still have 11 days left. Mm-hmm. Uh, so your options are attack of the cloud ladders, bring in the approacher. Let's, let's do the cloud ladders. Cloud ladders it is. Yeah. Great. So the cloud ladders is, it's better than just bringing ladders to the wall. We've all seen medieval movies where they yeah. have siege ladders and they throw them at the wall. Okay. There's That's what two I big advantages with the cloud ladders. Okay. So first of all, these are vehicles. Uh-huh. So if you can picture a wagon. Yeah. Which has a ladder, a folded ladder, uh-huh. placed at an angle on top of it. Like a fire truck? It's sort of like a, yeah, it's like a primitive fire truck. Okay. So the ladder is folded on top of it. Uh-huh. And underneath the ladder, there is an armored box, which houses the people who are pushing the siege machine forward. Uh-huh. Now, when they reach or get close to the wall, they basically just pull a lever or cut a rope or something, and the spring-loaded folded ladder unfolds uh-huh. so that the top half just uh-huh. kind of like flips up to the wall. And that's, so that's the first advance, is it's, a sea, it's an armored siege engine that's hard to attack. Okay. yep. That's pretty good. Yeah. And the second advance is that the top of the ladder has hooks, so it hooks into the top of the wall. So it's okay. the, the people on top can't just push it off. Okay. So this nice. is your cloud ladder. Unfortunately, this cannot be defeated. <laughs> supreme <laughs> confidence in this one. Uh, unfortunately, they're also somewhat slow. Uh huh. And you know what's not slow? Moists. <laughs> <laughs> Moist thought. No. Uh, well, yeah, yes. But also, um, portable walls. Portable walls? Portable walls, you say. What? Yeah. So as you are cloud ladders, and you have a number of them, as they are moving toward the enemy wall, uh-huh. this is a feature of Chinese fortifications at this time, is they didn't just have one big gate or a couple big gates, the way yeah. European fortifications often okay. would in the medieval area. They would have regular gates in the wall. There would be a sally port every, in some cases, every hundred feet. Well, that sounds like dangerous. It sounds dangerous, but the point of it was because they had multiple layers of defenses, they wanted to be able to quickly deploy men yep. out okay. at any time in any okay. area. Yep. So as you are approaching, they have time to deploy men out of a different gate. Mm-hmm. And those, <laughs> those men bring with them portable walls, which are basically, if they are light, fast-moving equipment, 
Uh-huh. If you can picture just four wagon wheels on a flat platform, yep, and then a single vertical wall built on that sucker, yeah, on one side of it. Yeah. So it's not a big, heavy, fortified wall. It's just a single wooden wall, yeah. but it's like twenty feet tall, yeah. or fifteen, I think. Sorry. And there is a small platform along the top of it for men to fight off the top with crossbows. So these portable walls basically slide into place in between the cloud ladders and the city wall uh-huh. as you approach, creating a barricade between you and the city wall. So now I have to deploy my cloud ladder against the, the portable, portable wall and waste them. That is generally what happens. Oh, God. Now these... <laughs> Portable These walls. Uh, portable walls do not come on their own. <laughs> Wait, there's more. <laughs> there's more. They're supported, of course, by moving towers. Uh-huh. Which are not unlike a siege tower, but it's used defensively. Uh-huh. So uh, as you approach the city, a second wall just shows up in front of you with its own archery towers. Uh-huh. And that is what most of your cloud ladders end up hitting. Okay. Now, I will give it to you that the portable walls and the moving towers are all a little bit slow on their own, right? You might have some reaction time. I want to give you the benefit of the doubt. Okay. So, I will grant you that some of your cloud ladders managed to get around this mm-hmm. and managed to make, make contact with the city wall, mm-hmm. which is when they are met with my personal favorite MOAS device of all. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> all right. Uh, that is the automated sword wall. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> What manual did this come... This is, like, deep into, like, the Dungeon Masters, you know, like, array of tricks by... Yes. And this is the first time I can, like... Because I have GM'd many times. Yeah. You have to be, like, at least, like, reasonably fair when you're GMing. Right. So you're not just a jerk about it. But yeah. I get to be a jerk because Mozu is confident that you will just 100% be destroyed. Uh-huh. So... Uh, these devices, and they have some smaller practical things too. I mean, they have flails kept along the top of the wall so they can just flail your guys as they come up the ladder, stuff Mm -hmm. like that. But they have these devices, which are poorly described in the text. So this is going to be a little bit of Joe Punk magic to try to bring to life what they are. Okay. So this is a device that is on wheels that Uh rolls along the top of the defending wall. built by gnomes. It's definitely gnome powered. There, it's probably steam coming out of it right now. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, it rolls along the top of the defending wall, uh-huh. and the outside of it that faces your cloud ladders uh-huh. uh, is a uh, hundred slots with a hundred swords poking out of them. Okay. Now the text only says that it will then fire the swords, which I don't picture that being you launch the swords like arrows because you would just use arrows for that. Sure. So I am imagining that that means that they are on some kind of spring-loaded device or crank so that they churn and they just they shove out, they thrust mm-hmm. out, and then, and then they come draw. back in yeah. over and over, probably in an alternating basis. Yes. And it says, move move the, the sword wall from side to side to keep it running or something like that. Yeah. So the way I picture it is that the, the motion of the wheels that it's on yeah. drives the internal device. That makes sense. Yes. So there is a, a wall of churning scythes or swords uh, uh-huh. poking at your men as they try to get off the top of this ladder. Because, of course, the ladder is anchored to the top of the wall, but suddenly there's 10 more feet of wall, which has moving swords coming out of it. Oh, God. And that's the part I can clearly picture. The last part I can't clearly picture okay. is that the moving sword wall, it says, make cavities in the sword wall and in them load cylindrical caltrops. Uh-huh. So I'm not sure whether it, like, launches. The caltrop being. Right. Like a little jack, like a, like when you play jacks, it's kind of like yeah. it's spiky on all all angles, right? And you throw it on 
a ground and then hopefully people step, step on, on them it and hurt their and foot. They hurt their That's foot. what a caltrop exactly. is. Exactly. Yes. Very okay. common in Chinese warfare Cylindrical, I don't get it. But. So there's many styles of caltrops. And what they're basically saying is, I mean, what I'm picturing is picture like a long cylinder, let's say a couple feet long, and okay. it's covered with spikes. Okay. So... You could roll it under someone's advancing siege equipment. Uh -huh. You could just lay them out so that people will step on them. Mm -hmm. But because it's a cylinder, it could potentially also roll. Yes. So yeah. I'm not clear on whether the sword wall just shoots these down the ladder at you guys. Uh -huh. So that there's just caltrops like raining on your faces. <laughs> or if it's like the top of the sword wall is covered with rotating cylinder caltrops so that if you get over it, you're st standing on caltrops. Uh-huh. Almost like barbed wire. Something like yeah. that. Okay. But there's definitely cylinder caltrops up in your business. Wow. Yeah. If if anybody like just created a fantasy setting that used all these things, I would be like, this never existed. This would never exactly. <laughs> like this is hard to believe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I don't. I mean, I wish I could picture better the moving wall because if we had a diagram of it or something, yeah. that would help greatly in assessing like was this a realistic thing that we believe or was this like Leonardo da Vinci's like crazy war designs that would never work? Right. 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 Yeah. Hmm. Um, but in any case. So, the cloud letters have failed. Okay. Your men have been slaughtered. Few of oh, them make it I back. Need to, I need to gong again. Oh, but before you gong, okay. you hear the voice of Grandmaster Mo. Okay. Who says, If you ask the sages who the ancestors were, will they not say that they were the people of heaven? And if you ask them then if the people of the north are the people of heaven, will they not say that they are? And if you ask them then if the people of the south are the people of heaven, will they not say that they too are? And the people of the East and the people of the West, are they not also the people of heaven? When you attack the people, therefore, are you not attacking the people of heaven? And if so, when you attack them, how could you possibly prevail against heaven? Yes. So in other words, no matter who you attack, you're attacking somebody who exists under heaven. And heaven is, equally benefits everybody. Yeah. And that's where your mind should be. Yes. Not in attacking somebody. Exactly. And these taunts that I'm using are completely made up. I just made them up because it's fun to write in the style of this text. But he does at one point talk about how everyone is the people of heaven. I was thinking, because yeah. I, like, I gave I gave the whole defensive bit of the text a once through. And sure. you definitely pulled out so much more <laughs> sense of it than I could make of it because it was like pretty difficult to understand. Right. And that particular thing, I was like, I don't remember reading that. That sounds about right. Maybe yeah. I missed it. Trying to keep him true to the, yeah. the spirit. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so we have many more ways for your men to die. <laughs> but this particular episode is getting long. So yeah. I think it's best if we break it up into two parts. Yeah. yeah? Yeah. Okay. So next time when we come back, Brandon's sad little army is going to pick up right where it left off. Struggling. I'm going to win this time. You're going to win. <laughs> You've got to win in you somewhere. I know it. Yeah, you know, you got this far. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I made it past the Palisades. You did. Yeah. <laughs> I know it. Just just waiting to pull out my Death Star. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah. No, that that's wise. We should we should break it up here and we'll pick up again. This is gonna be the first this is gonna be unprecedented in Dead Ideas history that a host that is not me does more than one episode <laughs> in a series. Alright. Well I'm I mean I told I told you I have shall we say uh some lust. For Mozu and the Siege Warfare. I thing. believe you now. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm ready. <laughs> I believe you now. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you, Andre, for being on the show. We'll see you right again next time. <laughs> hey, everybody, if you are digging this, and, and I don't mean like digging under the walls, but maybe you, well, you should probably, I, that's probably what I should be doing. Um, but 
Uh, you can support the show on Patreon. I'm sure there's a way that you can write to tell me what I should be doing to get into this damn city. <laughs> so try that. But failing that... Have you tried non-aggression? <laughs> it's so simple. <laughs> failing that, you can also support me by giving $5 a month that you get your portrait drawn uh, in the time period and culture of your choosing. Possibly scaling a cloud ladder and having to deal with automated <laughs> sword walls. <laughs> www.patreon.com forward slash Dead Ideas Pod. Thank you, everybody. I can't wait till next time. <laughs> I'm BT Newberg, and this is Dead Ideas. Hey, everybody. Just a reminder that we have joined the Recorded History Podcast Network, and the income generated from that is going to make the show better and better. But if you are the kind of person who prefers an ad-free listening experience, just head over to Patreon, where we are uploading all of our episodes completely ad-free, and in addition to getting a portrait for your support, you also get ad-free listening. So head over to Patreon. All right, I'll see you next week. Thank you very much. Bye.